Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years War. In this episode, we're going to be having a look at our first bit of international news. Well, I suppose international speaking, in that we're moving out of sort of the United Kingdom scope of things to have a look at what's happening in France. Last week, when we were talking, we kind of wrapped up how things have been going in the disputes and various wars and raiding between England and Scotland, and that had finalised with the death of Robert Bruce, as well as the English purchasing a piece from the Scots and sealing that further with a marriage between King David and Edward's younger sister. So let's move on to chapter 21, how Philip of Valois was crowned King of France. King Charles of France, son to the fair King Philip, was three times married, and yet died without issue male. The first of his wives was one of the fairest ladies in all the world, and she was daughter to the Earl of Artois. Howbeit she kept but evil sacrament of matrimony, but broke her wedlock, wherefore she was kept a long space in prison in the castle Gallard, before her husband was made king. And when the realm of France was fallen to him, he was crowned by the ascent of twelve does peers of France. And then, because they would not that the realm of France should be long without an heir male, they advised by their council that the king should be remarried again. And so he was to the daughter of the emperor Henry of Luxembourg, sister to the gentle king of Bohemia, whereby the first marriage of the king was foredone between him and his wife that was in prison, by the license and declaration of the pope that was then, and by his second wife, who was right humble and a noble wise lady, the king had a son who died in his young age, and the queen also at Isudun in Berry, and they both died suspiciously, wherefore diverse persons were put to blame after privily. And after this, the same King Charles was married again the third time to the daughter of his uncle, the Lord Louis, Earl of Evreux. And she was sister to the King of Navarre, and was named Queen Joan. And so in time and space, this lady was with child. And in the meantime, the King Charles, her husband, fell sick and lay down on his deathbed. And when he saw there was no way with him but death, he devised that if fortune to the queen to be delivered of a son, then he would that the Lord Philip Valois should be his governor and regent of all his realms, till his son come to such age as he might be crowned king. And if it fortuned that the queen have a daughter, then he would that all the twelve peers of France should take advice and counsel for the further ordering of the realm, and that they should give the realm and regally to him that had most right thereto. And so within a while after the King Charles died, about Easter in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-C-X-X-V-I-I-I. And within a short space after, the queen was delivered of a daughter. Then all the peers of France assembled a council together at Paris, as shortly as they might conveniently. There they gave the realm by common accord to Sir Philip of Valois, and put clean out the Queen Isabel of England and King Edward her son, for she was sister German to the King Charles last dead. But the opinion of the nobles of France was, and said and maintained, that the realm of France was of so great nobles that it ought not by succession to fall into a woman's hand. And so thus they crowned King of France Philip Valois at Reims on Trinity Sunday next after. 
And anon after he summoned all his barons and men of war, and went with all his power to the town of Castle, and laid siege thereto, in making war against the Flemings, who had rebelled against their own lord, and namely they of Bruse, of Ypres, and of the Frank. For they would not obey the Earl of Flanders, but they had chased him out of his own country, so that he might not abide in no part thereof, but only in Gaunt and scantly there. These Flemings were a sixteen thousand, and had a captain called Colin Danaquin, a hardy man and courageous, and they had made their garrison at Castle, at the wages of diverse towns in Flanders, to the intent to keep the frontiers thereabout, but ye shall hear how the Flemings were discomfited, and all by their own outrage. Okay, let's pause there for a second, because that's an important point in our story that we're going to come back to, that Philip of Valois is named King of France, and that that puts out Isabel and Edward, who did have some claim to the French throne. Now, if you want to dive into this, there is actually a legal precedent that is revived by the peers of France to say that inheritance cannot go through a female line. This isn't the kind of case where there is like a, a lot of tradition or common law or expectation that men are the only people who inherit. In this case, in order to actually justify and legitimize the exclusion of Isabel as a potential inheritor, and thus Edward as well, lawyers get involved. And this may be a surprise to some of you. It was a little bit to me when I first got involved. But at this point in European history, the legal profession is in full swing. There are teams and teams of lawyers who operate governmental departments who are on call to look through years of records and traditions in order to justify just about anything that people want to do. In fact, if you can't find legal precedent for things and you can't find a way to twist the precedent to be legal for something, then it either has really just not come up in the written history of your country or there's no chance. And so when they go through this process, the peers of France are saying, who is going to be king? Isabella does actually put forward a complaint on behalf of Edward, or possibly Edward puts forward a complaint on behalf of Isabella. It's a little unclear the exact details to me of how that one goes through. That kind of statecraft and the early systems that people use in these two countries to communicate, uh, establish ties and exchange legal bindings and stuff like that is something we're going to come back to. And it's something we've sort of touched on with things like, well, we'll have a peace treaty, but only for three years. And it contains the following terms and that sort of thing between the English and the Scots. But it's going to become more important as we go forward. So there's going to be a couple more sides like this one. The other thing I want to touch on briefly here is France and the Flemings. So at this point in time, it's not good to think about France as a really unified country. Technically, France is approximately where it is today and all approximately everything that makes up France is part of France. But France is actually sort of a name for a series of territories that are ruled by different groups of people who all sort of agree that the king of France is ultimately their lord. And that seems like it's the same thing, but it's not quite. Those people will be the peers of France, they'll be major landowners, but you'll often find terms like a prince of France will come up where they're not directly related to the King of France, they're just powerful enough that they can push the King of France around a bit. And that basically makes them a prince. They have this level of power. And so the different provinces in France 
are not unified in the way they are today. People in Flanders speak Flemish and they are Flemish. They don't identify themselves as being French. They have a different language and culture that are similar to France, but are not the same. The same can be said of Guyenne, Gascony, and a number of other places that would not identify themselves as being French. If you're into modern history, there's a whole story about France looking to actually basically eliminate other parts of its culture in order to unify this idea of Frenchness under a single banner. And that involved eliminating like a number of these languages like Flemish. And so if you go to something like modern day Belgium, you'll tend to find they speak French Belgium with this kind of idea that that is not French. It is French Belgium. And so that's it's not really in the scope of our discussion today, but is something that you may be interested in pursuing. Anyway, getting back to the matter at hand, Flanders is a area that is realistically a little bit of a mining town, if that phrase is familiar to you, where the whole sort of major towns in Flanders tends to revolve around a particular industry and the people there work and operate in that industry. And that industry is really core to their economy, employing people, attracting people to come and live there, creating trade. All these sort of things revolve around one particular aspect of the French economy, and that is textiles. So at this point in time, Flanders is a really important market that takes raw wool and turns that into manufactured textiles that are spread throughout Europe via trade fairs. And so you hold this big fair and everybody knows on this particular date, lots of people will come, they will bring their merchandise and you can come and you can buy it. And so it's these set kind of markets where people can come through and you needed all kinds of special permissions to hold them. But one of the main things that you would do is if you were a merchant, you would come and you would buy textiles. You would take that through the low countries into places like Germany or even further out into Western Europe. And that would create trade through places that we now refer to as things like Germany and Holland and uh, other kind of European countries. The thing is, all the wool that they used to create those textiles out of came from England. And so there was a feeling among the French nobility and among people who consider themselves to be French, that the Flemish tended to be too friendly to the English and that they tended to be Anglophiles. There was a feeling among the Flemish that they kept getting screwed around by all these people in France who didn't understand that if they didn't get access to English wool, then they would literally starve to death for want of work. This often led to a lot of dissatisfaction between French lords who wanted to be the Lord of Flanders and rule and keep barriers between Flanders and England and make sure that their position at court was safe and they wouldn't be offending the French king and their people whose lives revolved around access to English wool. And so the idea of a rebellion in Flanders at this point of time is, you know, they come and go. They're not constant, but they're not uncommon. And I'm not surprised that we're going to see one here for chapter 22. Speaking of, let's get into it. Of the Battle of Castle in Flanders. And on a day, they of the garrison of Castle departed out to the intent to have discomfited the king and all his host. And they came privily without any noise in three battles well ordered, whereof the first battle... 
took the way to the king's tents, and if it was a fair grace that the king had not been taken, for he was at supper and all his company, and thought nothing of them. And the other battle took the straight way to the tents of the king of Bohemia, and in a manner they found him in like ease. And the third battle went to the tents of the Earl of Hanolt, and in likewise they had near taken him. These hosts came so peaceably to the tents, that with much pain they of the host could arm them, whereby all the lords and their people had been slain, and the more grace of God had not been, but in manner by miracle of God these lords discomfited all three battles, each battle by itself, all in one hour, in such wise that sixteen thousand Flemings there escaped never a person, captains and all were slain, and the king and the lords of France knew not one of another, nor what they had done till all was finished and achieved, for they lay in three sundry parties one from another. But as for the Flemings, there was not one left alive, but all lay dead on heaps one upon another in the said three sundry places, and this was done on St. Bartholomew's Day, the year of our Lord, M-C-C-C-X-X-V-I-I-I. Then the Frenchmen entered into the town of Castle and set up the banners of France, and the town yielded them to the king and also the people of Popering and of Ypres, and all they of Chatainly of Bruges. And then they received the Earl Louis their lord, and swore to him faith and loyalty for ever. Then after the king and his people departed and went to Paris, and he was much honoured and praised for his enterprise and aid that he had done to his cousin, Louis Earl of Flanders. And thus the king was in great prosperity, and every day increased his royal estate. For as it was said, there was never a king in France that held like estates as did this king, Philip of Valois. So that's quite a nice introduction for Philip there. Obviously, in our discussion of the kind of things that you want to be represented as a king in this time, a hero who rescued his cousin from his discomfiture through feats of arms with powerful allies who each managed to defeat their own contingent of Flemings and killed 16,000 Flemings, captain and all. That's a pretty healthy introduction for somebody. It's certainly uh, a strong praising of their skills and their virtue and abilities if God is granting them a miracle in battle. Whether that's the truth of that matter, uh, that's probably a stretch. It's unlikely that the Flemish were literally killed to a man. It's also unlikely that God directly got involved. I think there's probably a chance we'll find something else involved with that one. So I want to explore what we were talking about a little bit earlier with that aside of how succession is happening in this part that we're looking at, because I think it's an important point in history that is going to be one of the key pieces moving forwards towards the Hundred Years' War that is a point of contention between England and France. So in order to do that, I've grabbed my copy of The Hundred Years' War by Edward Proy, which we looked at last episode as well. And I'm just reading from chapter four here, the succession to the throne of France. When on June 5th, 1316, the eldest son of Philip the Fair died young after a short reign of 18 months, no law of succession enabled the person upon whom the crown of France should devolve to be named without argument. That the succession was hereditary, no one denied. 
During two centuries, the first Capetians had succeeded in making hereditary de facto by arranging, during their lifetime, that their eldest sons should be chosen and crowned kings. They then succeeded without further intervention on the part of the barons. Thanks to this expedient, the hereditary principle had so far insinuated itself into custom, that custom which, to the men of the Middle Ages, was the supreme rule of law, that at the beginning of the 13th century, Philip Augustus no longer deemed it desirable to associate his heir, whom incidentally he distrusted, with him before his death. Louis VIII, and after him St. Louis, then Philip III, then Philip the Fair, then again Louis X, all assumed power on the death of the preceding sovereign without their claim being contested by anyone. This was particularly notable on the death of Louis VIII, who left only a little boy as his heir. It so happened that by a stroke of luck unique in history, this long line of kings from Hugh Capet to the close of the 10th century to Philip the Fair as the dawn of the 14th, always left at every generation one or more sons capable of succeeding them. Hereditary succession in the male line was on record in fact. It did not exist in law since no precedent had as yet enabled it to be formulated explicitly as a rule. The kings themselves consistently recoiled from the task, quite simple though it was, of decreeing how their inheritance was to devolve in future. On the other hand, should the occasion arise, everything seemed to point in the favour of succession in the female line, in default of a male heir. The much-heralded Salic Law, whose long-forgotten clauses were to be unearthed by the lawyers of the Valois very belatedly, to be sure, not until the time of Charles V, in order to strengthen their master's legal position, was by this time only a museum piece of no compelling value, which deceived no one. In all the provincial customs of the Kingdom of France, the rule of female succession, in default of a direct male heir, was so well established that all kinds of ingenious systems had had to be evolved to enable fiefs fallen to the distaff side to provide their suzerain with the military service required by feudal law, nor did it ever enter the legal minds of the feudal period to make any distinction whatever between the rules of private law and those of public law. In the eyes of most subjects and of the kings themselves, a kingdom was just an inheritance like any other, subject to the same laws and the same customs. In claiming the contrary, the jurists of the crown steeped in Roman law were breaking new ground in custom, to the great scandal of their contemporaries. In doing so, moreover, they were placed the glorious French monarchy higher than any other kingdom, exalting it above temporal crowns, since it was, according to them, a dignity too eminent, a power too great, to devolve upon a mere woman. It resembled the empire, which remained elective, and, like the papacy, also elective, could be entrusted only to a man. Everywhere else, as crowns had become hereditary, they were subject to the same rules of devolution as private inheritances, in other words, transmissible to women. This was the case in England, Scotland, Portugal, Navarre, Castile, Aragon, Sicily, Poland, and Hungary. If a different law was to be admitted in France, it was not enough that such preeminence of the kingdom over all others affirmed only in the restricted circle of paid lawyers should be accepted. It was necessary that a combination of circumstances should occur. It remains for us to examine this combination. For the first time in the long line of Capetians, Louis X left no son. By his first wife, Margaret of Burgundy, who had met a tragic death in the frightful scandal which overtook Philip the Fair's three daughters-in-law in 1314. 
He had a daughter, Joan, still a minor, in 1316, but from the very fact of the misconduct of which her mother had been convicted, her legitimacy might be disputed. Louis's second wife, Clemence of Hungary, was pregnant at the time of her early widowhood. If she gave birth to a son, the child would be king. No one had any doubt about that. If the child was a daughter, there was no telling what solution would be found. Pending the event, a regency was necessary. This might be claimed either by Charles of Valois, paternal uncle to the last king and doyen of the Princes of the Blood, or Duke Eudes IV of Burgundy, maternal uncle and guardian-elect of the young Joan of France. But these two candidates let themselves be outmaneuvered by Philip the Fair's second son, the brother of the dead king Philip Count of Poitiers. The only one of these last Capetians who seems to have had a strong character and outstanding personality. Philip sees the regency of the two kingdoms of France and Navarre and paternal and maternal heritages of his dead brother. Bought off the needy Charles of Valois by the promise of financial compensation and finally calmed the anxiety of Eudes of Burgundy by an agreement which safeguarded, until her still remote coming of age, the rights of his ward to both successions. Master of power, in fact, the Count of Poitiers had now more than half won the game. After five months of his uncontested regency, on November 13th, 1316, the Queen gave birth to a son. The child would have been king, and indeed, many genealogists, to keep the records straight, insert him into the list of sovereigns of France under the name of John I the Posthumous, if he had not died five days after his birth. This unforeseen event took Joan's partisans aback. Still, many of them felt that the daughter should now succeed the father, though they were not ready to oppose the ambitious regent's designs by force of arms. So when Philip claimed the crown, opposition broke out among the barons, including the greatest, who were scandalized to find that he wanted to treat the kingdom contrary to the customs which governed their fiefs. By obscure bargains, whose details are not known to us, the regent succeeded in surmounting all obstacles one after the other. First, Charles of Valois, and above all the regent's young brother Charles, Count of La Marche, who had made himself a zealous and clamorous defender of his niece's rights, were in turn reduced to silence. Finally, on January 9th, 1317, Philip V had himself crowned at Reims. But most of the temporal peers, the Dukes of Brittany, Guienne, and Burgundy, and the Count of Flanders abstained from attending the traditional ceremony, as though they grudged acceptance of the accomplished fact. Only two lay peers of France were to be seen in attendance on the new king, and these were the most recent, his uncle, Charles of Valois, and his mother-in-law, Matilda of Artois. To strengthen a power obviously shaky and dubious of legitimacy, the new king asked for an assent of an assembly of notables summoned in Paris at the following candle mass, February 2nd. These prelates and barons, to whom were added burgesses from the chief towns and doctors of the University of Paris, could not with decency set themselves up against a crowned king. With what arguments did he convince them? We have never been told. In any case, in order to legitimize the Count of Poitiers' patent usurpation, they proclaimed that a woman cannot succeed to the Kingdom of France. A rule of law was thus defined, and there was no going back. It should be added that Philip, a decidedly ungrateful uncle, bitterly disputed with his niece the inheritance which should have come to her from her grandmother Joan of Champagne, namely the Kingdom of Nevers and the counties of Champagne and Brie. He recognised, it is true, her claim to Nevers, but pending her coming of age, she was only seven, he assumed and retained throughout his reign the title of King of Nevers and the administration of the Pyrenean Kingdom. 
As for Champagne, he kept it for himself, promising territorial or financial compensation. This was the occasion of a commotion by the Champagne barons who, exasperated by the spoliation of which their legitimate countess had been victim, sought to shake off the usurper's tutelage, but in vain. The precedent of 1316 to 1317 had so far acquired the force of law that when, after a reign of five years, Philip V the Tall died in his turn, January 2nd, 1322, leaving only five daughters by his wife Joan, daughter of the Count of Burgundy, his young brother Charles of La Marche, the very man who had formally protested so violently against the disinheritance of Louis X's daughter, brusquely put aside all his nieces and became Charles IV the Fair. No one seems to have protested this time. But the reign of Charles IV was no more than two preceding reigns, destined to have a long and brilliant future. On February the 1st, 1328, at the age of 33, the last Capetian died in turn. He had been married three times, first to Blanche of Burgundy, whom he divorced and shut up in a covenant after the scandal which I have mentioned, then to Mary of Luxembourg, who had left him a daughter, still a minor, and finally to his first coven, Joan of Evreux, who was pregnant at the time when the king's early death made her a widow. Eleven and a half years afterwards, a situation was reproduced identical with that which had enabled Philip V to assume his regency and then the crown. This time, three candidates seemed to be in a position to claim the regency. First of all was the young Philip of Evreux, who combined in himself the triple qualification of being the first cousin of the last three kings, since he descended from Louis of Evreux, Philip the Fair's younger half-brother, of having married Joan of France, Louis X's daughter, thrust aside from the throne 11 years earlier, and finally being the brother-in-law of the last king and consequently the natural conciliar of his sister Joan and the guardian designate of the child with whom she was pregnant. But his youth, his political inexperience, and his weakness of character, not unlike that of his father, led to his failure to put forward his claim and promote his candidature. Next in consideration came the King of England, Edward III, the nearest relation in blood of the last three sovereigns since he was the son of their sister Isabella. But he was far away and unable to make the most of his claim in time. He was young too. Could one seriously contemplate entrusting the great kingdom of France to a youth of 16 who, in his island of England, endured without a murmur the close and humiliating tutelage of his mother and that virago detested in France? editor's note here, the fact that Isabella and Roger Mortimer are not married but are clearly lovers is a matter of considerable scandal in France, and while they can't say that Isabella, a noble of high status, is clearly a very awful person because of this, they do have a very public distaste of Roger Mortimer. Finally, there remained Philip of Valois. As first cousin of the dead sovereigns, his claim took precedence of that of Philip of Evreux. Something of the prestige of his father was reflected upon him. That Charles of Valois, of whom it was to be said that he had been son of king, brother of a king, and uncle of three kings, and father of a king, but never king himself. Until his quite recent death in December 1325, Charles of Valois had exercised considerable influence over the policy of his nephews. To be sure, his son Philip, though a man of experience, he was nearly 35, had not yet shown the measure of his worth. 
He was first Count of Maine, in other words, part of his maternal inheritance, which had been granted him as an appendage, and had become since 1326 Count of Anjou and Valois. He was known to be adventurous like his father and fond of distant expeditions, but the only one which he had yet undertaken in Italy to help the Lombard cities in revolt against the Visconti had ended somewhat ingloriously. The chivalrous prince had simply let himself be bought off and then beaten a profit but dishonouring retreat. However, this was not held against him for an assembly of barons to which this time neither burgess from the towns nor doctors from the university were summoned, entrusted Charles of Valois' son with the regency of the Kingdom of France and into the bargain that of Nevers to which he had no right. Two months later, on April 1st, 1328, Queen Joan of Evreux gave birth to a daughter. There was no question of keeping the crown for this child, since in similar circumstances, Louis X's daughter and then those of Philip V had in turn been thrust aside. But out of the former candidates for the regency, two could now lay claim to the throne with a semblance of good reason and dispute over the kingdom as heirs male of the Capetians. As nephew of the last kings of the line and in their relation thrice removed, Edward III of England was closer to them than the Count of Valois, who was only their first cousin and consequently a relation four times removed. In favour of Philip, it could be argued that his relationship was entirely through males. That of the Plantagenet, on the contrary, included a woman, his mother Isabella of France, thrust aside from the succession at the same time as her nieces by reason of her sex. Could the Queen of England claim to transmit to her son a right which she herself could not enjoy? The lawyers of the Crown of France, not without logic, said that she could not. Less consistently, those of England said that she could. The question of law raised for the first time could not be decided one way or the other by an appeal to precedent. One would like to have details of the discussion, doubtless it was very brief, to the assembly of barons which the regent summoned at the Bois de Vinci's on the morrow of Joan of Evero's deliverance. It was probable that the legal arguments put forward on either side by the defenders of the two theses were less decisive than the considerations of expediency, all of which told in the favour of the Count of Valois. For nearly two months, Philip had held effective power to everyone's satisfaction. In this capacity as regent, he presided in person over the deliberations of this enlarged great council entrusted with nominating a sovereign. Could his candidate be set aside and an absentee be preferred to him without danger. Against Edward III stood the fact, not as is too often repeated, that he was a foreigner, for he could hardly be called a foreigner in the modern sense of the word, since he was French in speech and education, son of a princess of France, himself a peer of France, Duke of Guinea and Count of Pointieu, husband of a daughter of Hainault, who was herself Philip of Valois' niece, but that he was a Plantagenet, in other words, King of England and a disobedient vassal, traditionally in conflict with his sovereign. His only two frequent rebellions had necessitated within the past 30 years two confiscations of the Gascon fief, followed by two armed conflict, and the last of these wars, barely over, remained fresh in everyone's mind. In 1325, Edward had stayed at the court of France, a boy dragged at his mother's heels. The manners of this wicked and shameless woman, her slanders, her parade of her liaison with Mortimer, had been found detestable. It was recalled that Charles IV had banished her from his court, as she was well known to be still all-powerful in the government of England, 
The French baronage feared that if they chose her son, they would be instilling this haughty princess and her foreign clique in Paris for an indefinite period. Like that of February 1317, the assembly in April 1328 created law rather than found it ready to hand. But while in 1317 the foreseeable exclusion of Louis X's daughters struck many as an act of injustice contrary to custom, the verdict of 1328 by which the Count of Valois was chosen in preference to the too young and too distant King of England was accepted without a murmur in the Kingdom of France. It was the logical sequel to the precedents twice created by Philip V and Charles VI. It raised to the throne a prince who, if not as yet very popular, was at least no stranger to the court and was liked by the nobility. Much later, the Flemings, who cherished an inveterate hatred towards Philip VI because he had rudely chastised them, nicknamed him the Foundling King. This contemptuous name has too often been taken up by modern historians, but it could not be applied in this spring of 1328 to the unanimously chosen successor to the last Capetien. The new reign began under the happiest auspices. It reunited the considerable strength of the kingdom with the resources of the appendage of Valois and Anjou. Internally, no opposition was recorded. Externally, for the time being, no serious danger was to be feared, since the troubles of the young Edward III in England prevented him from giving free reign to his disappointment as a rejected candidate. The dynastic change took place smoothly. All the vassals came to pay homage to Philip at his coronation, without anxiety about the future. He could impose upon the daughters of the late kings a settlement of their rights fruitful to himself, and then set off for war against the Flemish communes. Though the accession of the Valois constituted, so to speak, its prelude, the conflict between the two dynasties did not as yet seem close at hand. I know that was a bit of a long read from the Hundred Years' War there, but I think it touched on a number of important points. And those of you who go through that particular chapter and just try and pick out the details, I think we'll notice them come through quite consistently in the chapters that are going to follow this one. Certainly it won't be immediate, but if you keep an eye on some of those details, things like uh, paying homage to the realm of France and Edward's rebellious nature in doing so, I think you'll find that the points that are brought up there as pain points between France and England are ones that we are going to hear more about. Either way, that's plenty of time for today's recording. I hope you'll be joining me next week as we return back to England and find another resolution in Edward III's story so far with chapter 23, how the Earl of Kent and the Earl Mortimer in England were put to death. I'll see you then for more Chronicles The Hundred Years' War.